Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast, Awaken the World. This podcast is part of an online community library we're developing, one that contains podcasts, videos, transcripts and booklets based on Michael's talks. The goal of this library and this podcast is to bring mindfulness and mental health into the spotlight. Through this work, we're creating new ways to wake up through socially engaged, conscious, spiritual practice. We're creating a culture of compassion and collaboration. We've left our physical monasteries and we're bringing them online. Before we get to today's podcast, I want to take a moment to ask you to consider becoming a patron of this podcast through Patreon. Pledging is easy and can be as little as $1 per month. Just go to patreon.com forward slash Michaelstone and click on the big orange button on the top right of the page. Thank you for listening. So, good evening. It's uh, warm in here tonight. <laughs> and uh, maybe just a little bit fidgety. So, um, when we're sitting, um, if you feel like you have to move, Take some time and really uh, be mindful of how you're going to move, and then move, and then be done. Um, And then notice what it was like to move, and bring your attention to that. Um, But uh, unlike in the asana practice, when you feel patterns of sensation, uh, you don't explore them. You don't move with them. You don't really do anything with them. And uh, yogis are the fidgetist. Is that a word? Uh, Meditators. Uh, Because they're sensation addicts. They feel a sensation. They're like, oh yeah, I'm going to go into that. (laughs) And that's related to that. Oh yeah. And then uh, you miss the opportunity to really see something arise and and, uh, unfold and pass away, just like sound. And and everything that your uh, conceptual mind does with that. So, a little note on etiquette and technique. Um, I'm happy to be here. Uh, it's so nice to be here with so many of you, and um, and cause. Um, many of you here were on the New Year's retreat. New Year's, we went and sat still in silence for five days, four and a half days, and um, I was really impressed. And uh, the people who came and practiced really showed up and practiced. And during work period, really worked. And during the um, uh, sitting, really sat. And and, uh, the interesting thing on a retreat is, you know, even if you're new to sitting, um, somebody sits next to you who has a little more experience, and their stillness really influences your uh, alignment psychologically and um, in your own heart. And um, that was really happening on the retreat. People really supporting each other. And it made me so happy. Yeah. And um, I think this is actually really the heart of what we're doing here, is um, we're waking up so that we know uh, how to serve in every uh, moment. How to be a servant of a servant of a servant. And uh, the thing is, you know, the the ego, the eye-maker, uh, is like on a collision course with the servant. And some part of us 
that is free of um, needing to be somebody, um, really knows how to be happy and joyful. In Buddhism, it's called sympathetic joy. Um, because we're cultivating this ability to, to put to the side our cravings and to know that they never end. Um, and uh, one of the things we did on the retreat on New Year's was we had a little service for the hungry ghosts, which are those cravings we all have. At the end of every meal, we took some of our food and we put it in a bowl, and the bowl was in front of an altar for the hungry ghosts. And um, on New Year's, we took that food and uh, we made an offering to the hungry ghosts. And um, actually, that food at the end of the day doesn't go into the compost, it goes out into the forest for the wolves. And um, it represents this way that for all of us, um, we have these hungry ghosts. And the, the meditation practice is a way to relate to them. Some of you know the Buddha's story, you know, after the Buddha tried so many yoga practices, like standing on one leg, like fasting, um, he was uh, tormented. He felt that uh, this still wasn't waking him up from what had been torturing him since he was small. He lived in a protected uh, environment and he didn't really see too much of the world. And then when he did leave uh, his home, he saw suffering. And he turned to his charioteer in one of the stories and said, um, what am I looking at? And his charioteer said, um, people who are aging, people who are ill, uh, people who are dying and suffering. And he was kind of naive in a way. And he turned to his charioteer and he said, is this going to happen to me? And that's really what set him off um, on this path. And he tried many activities and then eventually frustrated, he sat underneath a tree and um, was determined to sit still and find out what was going on. Um, that was causing so much uh, suffering for him. And um, in those days, he was tormented. And uh, in his sitting practice, he was visited by Mara, who also continued to torment him. I'm not going to tell the whole story. But actually, I think that this is a theme, this tragic theme that runs through all of our lives, which is that um, we have this face and we have this surface life. And in all great literature, you know, when you think of uh, um, Dostoevsky or you think of The Trial, you know, all these stories are of somebody who um, has a kind of life going. And then that life, uh, you know, the author brings something into that life to explode it. And the best stories are lives that are exploded um, that were really fixed to begin with. You know, this makes a really good narrative, doesn't it? You know, you're identified with this character and how they're going through life, and you can just feel something's coming. <laughs> you know? And maybe all of our lives are like that. We have this surface life, and then we have a life underneath. And I like to think of this, and, and Norman Fisher is going to articulate this well in this essay, that actually underneath the face of our life, there's this really quiet life going on. Creative and spacious. And it's the life of a nun and it's the life of a monk that we all have. And maybe sometimes you're out on the street and you see a monk or you see a nun and it makes you uh, reflect quickly back in your own life. Um, maybe uh, when you hear about a silent retreat, some part of us goes, oh, that inner nun is listening. You know? And then some other part that is like building the life 
mm-hmm. is threatened by this. Mm-hmm. Five, ten days, three months of silence? Why would I do that to myself? I could make something of my life. And um, sometimes I like stages and talking about developmental stages in practice, and sometimes I don't. Um, This essay that we're going to explore uh, talks about eight stages of monastic practice. We're not monastics, and at the same time, we're all priests. Every one of us here is a priest. Every one of us here has an inner monastic life um, that may be in the expectations of your family and of the city um, and of this economy. There hasn't been so much room for that person to be alive. And um, this essay, I think, articulates the different stages of having a relationship with that person in all of us. And also, you'll read between the lines that talking about the eight stages of monastic practice is actually talking about the eight stages of relationship. That every relationship you're in, you go through stages. Sometimes you do them all in one day. Um, and I think we need to uh, take essays like this seriously just like we take our practice seriously Um, because we're living at a time where there is a self-invented practice that's so prevalent in our communities, where people have an idea of a practice, and then they do it according to their own likes and dislikes. I really like that part, but I don't like that. And then you can't let the practice be a mirror for your life. It just becomes a mirror for what you're good at, or a mirror that uh, what in psychology we call spiritual bypassing where you can use parts of your spiritual practice to actually bypass real psychological work that needs to be done, that doesn't get done. And um, we can be a little inflated sometimes in our practice um, that we're doing well. Uh, But then as that happens, that inner none is obscured by the sense of fraud that actually we kind of know that uh, we have nothing to measure our life by. And um, that's why I talk about what we do here as religious. And um, we're not doing yogism or Buddhism. Um, We're studying the Dharma. And this is not an ism. Every ism eventually becomes a schism, a way of being fixed in a view that creates conflict with other views and creates inflexibility. But actually what we're trying to do is live a religious life and let that part of our heart that is the inner monk and the inner nun have a religious life free of religion and um, to treat everything in our life as sacred and especially in these times where there is so much imbalance. When I read recently in uh, Sam Harris's new research that uh, there's a new financial index in the United States where uh, we're in the worst recession in recent memory. And in 2010, excluding property... 980,000 American families had more than $5 million cash in the bank. Just sitting there. I I was amazed at this. Um, That the wealthiest uh, 40 people in the United States 
uh, have more wealth than uh, 40 of the poorest countries in the world. And these kind of imbalances, I think, uh, have everything to do with the inner monk and the inner nun. So that we can figure out what are our values and how do we want to live? Because those people are also the people who are telling us how we should live and selling us the products that help us live with extrinsic, not intrinsic values. And sometimes I think it's like there's this psychological game being played. Like, how far can we push you? So, um, I hope we take this essay seriously, and I hope you reflect on um, your own values as we study this together. So, um, that's the prelude. So, I've copied uh, the essay for all of you, and I would like you to take it home and memorize it. It's eight pages. (laughs) If you do take it home, maybe you could leave a couple extra bucks in the uh, Donna box to cover the the photocopying. Um, And bring the copy back next week so we can read it together every week. Tonight I just want to get through the um, the introduction. So I'd like to start just maybe you can take a paragraph and you can take a paragraph and a paragraph and a paragraph. Yeah? Okay. The eight stages of monastic life. Religious, religious texts make monastic life sound like something very deep and very constant, like some life that has been the same for a thousand years, timeless and seamless. In a way, this is really true. Underneath who any of us are is another person, the monk, who is living a true and perfect life. I believe that all of us have this monk in us. All of us want to live this life of silence and perfection, and this life does go on in us, underneath our other life. When we're completely out of touch with it, we suffer a lot. We run around looking for something we can't seem to find, and our lives don't work. And when we are in touch with it, more or less, as we are in a retreat, or even in a few moments of practice, or at the beach, or on a long hike, or alone sometimes under the stars, we feel whole. Then we can approach others and the complicated world with a measure of equanimity. So this is what I mean by the monastic life, the way of wholeness, a sacred way, a sacred place, a clear place, an ideal in a sense that lives or lives at the bottom of our hearts and is reflected back to us in religious experience and in religious literature. But as we all know, ideals can be poison if we take them in large quantities or if we take them incorrectly. In other words, if we take them if we take them not as ideals, but as concrete realities. Ideals should inspire us to surpass ourselves, which we need to aspire to do if we are to be truly human, and which we can never actually do, exactly because we are truly human. And that's what ideals are, tools for inspiration, not realities in in and of themselves, the fact that we have so often missed this point accounts, I think, for the sorry history of religion and human civilization. Ideals become poison when we believe in them too literally, when we berate ourselves and others for not measuring up. No one measures up, no one ever will, but the natures of ideals, that, they're, that, that, sorry, that that's their beauty. So at their best, And if rigidity understood, ideals ought to make us pretty lighthearted. They give us a sense of direction, which is comforting, and since they are by nature impossibilities, why worry? Just keep trying. (laughs) The monastic life, as it appears by implication in the texts of any religious tradition, is that, is this kind of an ideal. You know, we stay in delighted obedience with our teacher for 
her teacher 40 years, living peacefully day by day, hearing the sounds of the bells, deep in meditation or prayer, in the mountains, among the clouds and forests, living in harmony and calmness. Well, underneath it may be like this, but up above, in our conscious world where we live, what we call our lives, it never really looks like that. What is the monastic life really like? I've been living in a Zen community for about 20 years and I've developed some thoughts on this subject. Our community isn't exactly a monastic community, of course, but it is a residential religious community where people come to live their lives for many years. And I think that we've experienced and come to understand over time turns out to be fairly typical of monastic or long-term residential religious communities. I want to speak of a series of stages in monastic life as a way of describing what happens in that life and what kinds of problems come up. Of course there aren't any stages, or the stages happen simultaneously or in no particular order, and one goes through them many times. Further, people, even people who share a taste for a religious life for one reason or another, are very different. No setting forth of stages could possibly do justice to the variety of people's experiences on the path. And this is another sometimes violent preconception, that there is a definite delineated path, and that things happen in the same way and in the same order for everyone. Still, systematic thinking has its virtues, and there are some general tendencies most of us can notice and recognize, at least to some extent. So let me speak of eight stages of monastic life. The eight are first, the honeymoon, second, the disappointment or betrayal, third, the exploration of commitments, fourth, commitments and flight, fifth, the dry place, sixth, appreciation, seventh, love, and finally, letting go of monastic life altogether. So that's the introduction to the essay. And um, I, I think he captures something really beautiful here, is um, this way that uh, um, he articulates values. I remember uh, uh, several years ago, the last year that Esther Myers was alive before she died, and um, I went out with her every two weeks. We went and had lunch together on Harvard Street. And then we would go to the used bookstore and buy each other books. And um, she had something she always used to say. She said, you know, when you're a yoga teacher and you walk into a classroom, every single thing that you do teaches people values. Everything you do teaches people values. The way somebody learns how to lift an arm overhead the way somebody relates to someone else, the way somebody works with their breathing, all creates a value system. And I really didn't understand what she meant at the time. But I think this many years uh, later, I'm really starting to get it, I think. Which is um, that there is some part of us um, that I think is being repressed when we're just in the consumption production cycle of our daily life. Um, you can call it the inner monk or the inner nun, but you can also call it the, that part of us that really has values um, that are ideals that we try and live up to. And that's what I'm calling religious, even though I know that may, might make some of you squirm. And um, here at Center of Gravity, we've been creating more and more ritual that we've been sneaking in the back door. Some of you have been looking, but some of you haven't even noticed. And um, some people wonder, you know, how can you have ritual when the Buddha is not a god? You know? And yet at the same time, the ritual of sitting, the ritual of bowing, on the retreat, one of the practices we did was use both hands. In everything you do, always use both hands. You pick up a sheet of paper, you pick up your orange, to always use both hands in the kitchen with everything you're doing. Another ritual we explored during the retreat 
was to treat everything you touch as if you're taking care of your eyesight. And what this does is it's a ritual so that the self, this body of flesh, is not separate from every corner of this universe, from every single thing. There's no separation. And the ritual is a way of being able to slow down and with attention, thank you to whoever left this for me, um, So beautiful. First it's an orange, you know, and then it's like (laughs) the nature of reality presenting itself like this. And like that, and like that, and like this. And maybe the orange is saying, I wanted to actually read. So the first stage of practice that he's going to explore here is the honeymoon. And uh, I hope you can also hear his humor in it, too. Um, I'll read this one out loud. The first stage, which is probably typical of the first stage of almost anything, is the honeymoon. A time when we're really thrilled with the life of the monastery. This is exactly what people are like on a retreat on the fourth day when like finally they're still and they're just like I want to live I want to move here (laughs) people come in for interviews and they're like we should buy this retreat (laughs) or they send little notes to the to the tenzo to the cook um have you thought about making a cookbook (laughs) everything tastes so good and um anyways We're thrilled with the life of the monastery. The contrast with what we're used to in the world or what we're fleeing from in the world is so great that we're in a state of ecstasy. We see the people we're living with are as really kind and wonderful. The sounds of the monastery bells, the simple hearty food, the early morning meditation, the landscape, the weather, the peace and quiet, the brilliant teachers and teachings. Really nothing could be better. We're learning about ourselves at a great rate, and we're learning about the Dharma too. So much of what we hear seems absolutely true, seems to be what we sensed inside ourselves all our lives, without ever really being aware of it or having words for it. We feel relieved and resolved and renewed. We feel as if suddenly and unexpectedly, perhaps in the midst of a great sorrow, we turned around in the middle of our ordinary life, and found to our amazement a brand new life in which all the assumptions and behaviors were different and fresh. And her name is... Don't we do this with our yoga practice? You, you go to a studio and it's this, I'm home. I'm home. And then you buy, you know, the right mat and the right clothing... Um, uh, some of you may have seen the interview I did in Briar Patch magazine that, that's available over there and one of the things that says I don't know how they wrote this but it's like nobody comes to center of gravity wearing Lululemon for fear of being ridiculed but that's not true I just see the honeymoon and uh, that's not true um, and then the first thing that we do in the honeymoon phase is we want everyone in our life to be doing what we're doing you know and you invite all your friends and everybody come and you know joins the honeymoon and the thing about the honeymoon is it's really important because the honeymoon is the first merger it's where we've actually turned around in our life and we've seen something that's really um, beneficial but What we're also seeing, and I think what we all fail to see, which is why the end of the honeymoon is so painful, is that we're also seeing that what we're idealizing is also what we lack. And that's why romantic love always has to happen in a triangle. There has to be the you that lacks something, the life that isn't working, 
and then the possibility. Mm-hmm. You know, and what you project onto that possibility um, is what you've repressed. Often, the best parts of you that you have pushed away, you find in someone else, which is why at the beginning, the other feels like it's completing you because it's true. Right? And the other thing is that what we long for has to be kind of like us, like our ideal. And if it's not like our ideal, it has to be exactly the opposite. Everything I need to be. Does anybody find this when they first meet someone that they really like? They're they're so amazing. <laughs> they're like they're doing everything that I want to do. You know, is what we're saying. You know, and then um, you go to their house, and the first time you know you check out their books <laughs> and like make sure oh, those are all the books I wanted to read. <laughs> Or it's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, or, or if you're completely blinded uh, in lust and none of it matches, it's like, it's okay, this is what I need to grow. <laughs> and this is, the, this is the honeymoon phase. And the best thing about the honeymoon is they're doing the same thing to you. So actually, nobody sees each other. It's just two images, you know? And, and you, you sit with them and you study their, their toenail. It's the most beautiful toenail I've ever seen, you know? And it, and it gives you a kind of attentiveness. But actually, the attentiveness, it's covered over by, um, or it's inspired by a kind of lack. You know, and that's what's so beautiful about romantic love, uh, is it also can really show us something, and we bring this pattern also to our spiritual practice. And actually, I think some of us, what we do is we stay on the superficial part of practice for as long as possible, so that we never have to leave the honeymoon phase, right? Um, because the honeymoon's so good. I feel so good, and um, I've never felt better, you know. And then when I start to not feel so good, um, it's like, well, I'll just switch teachers. <laughs> yeah? And then it's like that studio that was not the real yoga. This teacher, like this, is the real. And then you have to say to all your friends, "You got to come study with this teacher." Really, like. Um, and uh, it's all really good, except the teacher is trying to figure out how to let you down. Because that's the job of the teacher, is like, they see what you're projecting onto your practice, and they're scheming. How am I going to let this person down in the most gentle way? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and this is what has to happen in the honeymoon phase. So Norman goes on. This stage can last for some time, but it usually comes to an end. (laughs) In fairly short order. We enter the second stage, the stage of disappointment or betrayal. Of course, what happens is we lose the sense of contrast with the world at large, and what's inside us becomes stronger than our perception of the newness of our surroundings. Whatever festering problems we have, known and unknown, that were held in abeyance while we marveled at the greatness of the religious life, now come out full-blown, and rather see them for what they are, our own internal contradictions, we project them outward onto the community. We begin to see the truth. There are plenty of imperfections. The food gets tiring. The people aren't as nice as they were a few months ago. The many restrictions on our lifestyle becomes wearing. We begin to notice a lack of creativity and energy in our fellow practitioners, especially in some of the old-timers. We're a little asleep, deprived, and weary, and we begin to notice, too, that there are many baffling and unacceptable aspects to the teachings. 
In fact, on one hand, the teachings sound purposely confusing and incomprehensible. And on the other hand, they sound suspiciously, in many cases, like the religion we grew up in and fled from. And the teachers turn out to be a lot less fantastic than we first imagined. We're seeing them stumble and make mistakes. And if we haven't seen it, we've heard about it. Or if we haven't heard about it or seen it, then the teachers are perhaps a little too perfect. There's something suspicious and even coercive about their piety. Are they really real? Little by little, a sense of disillusionment disillusionment of betrayal comes over us. So actually, what's happening? What's happening is the lack, right? The lack that we've been keeping at a distance because we've been projecting our ideal outside of us now starts to come. And I would say that this is the point where people quit. Okay? So some people, you could say, go through this in a month, but actually, most of us, this is like at year seven, in a long-term view of these stages. That actually things have been pretty good, but then actually we start to see through every ideal we had. But we don't see that we were seeing an ideal. We think it's them. Right? And then we quit. You know, Zen's not for me. Ashtanga Vinyasa Yoga is not for me. It's for young people. I'm getting too old for this. How is a jump back going to help me? Um, But actually what we're doing is we're not examining what's going on for us. We're just judging out there. And what we need to do is we need to actually internalize what's going on for us. So I would say that if the first stage is the honeymoon, the second stage is indigestion. Right? Where you've been projecting, 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 and now you're starting to... uh, uh, burp. <laughs> yeah. And um, the other thing is, this is the opportunity where real relationship can happen. Right? Isn't it? I mean, isn't this what's so powerful about relationship? Is that um, other people are really going to fuck up your story about them. Because nobody wants to be idealized even though it feels good for a while. And this is the biggest danger for teachers. Because when you teach, your social sphere expands exponentially, and it feels really good. People like you. you know? But the problem is, if you're really going to serve them, then you have to sometimes point things out that you see that are going on in the relationship, and then you lose 30% of the students. I think. Because what's happening is you start to feel where you're being turned into something. Psychotherapists are doing exactly the same thing. The psychotherapist is studying the quality of the relationship and saying, I don't feel myself. I'm being turned into, you know, a bad mother right now. I'm being turned into a sibling right now. And you study that and then you bring it up with the person. And then the person runs away. And they're like, you're supposed to be the person to fix me. Say, well, no, actually, uh, the honeymoon's ending now. (coughs) So let me hand back to you what you've been bringing in small doses. And maybe, actually, that's the whole job of a teacher, is just to keep handing back to you everything that you bring. And it's extremely frustrating, because all of us want a teacher who's going to tell us what to do. And that's exactly where religion fails, is that it gives you a story. This is what you should do. And this is how it happened. The religion of psychoanalysis, the religion of physics, the religion of biology. That this is how it happened, and just, you know, go to work. <laughs> go back to work. So um, I would like you, between, as your homework, 
from now to next week uh, to be a bit honest right now for the next week with yourself around your practice and see if you can notice where your honeymoon showed up and also where there's been some disappointment and see if you can connect those two things. Where maybe we've been we've had inflated ideas about other people or about practice and then we've been a bit disillusioned and then we haven't really looked at what's been going on in us around that we just see how they disappointed me or how the teachings didn't really this is a powerful piece I think really powerful um And I just want to add one more thing before I I finish. I'll talk more about this maybe next week. It just occurred to me, but there are eight stages of relationship here. And actually, whatever stage you have been wounded in your most important relationships, maybe you've been wounded in this stage where the honeymoon ends and the person you've been really invested walks away. Maybe it was a parent. Or maybe it's another stage. Maybe it's in the dry stage where things are just kind of mundane and um, somebody really hurt you in that phase. They didn't go into it with you when you were there. We've all been hurt, I think, in these stages. So... Whatever stage you've been wounded in, that wound is going to come up again in every other relationship when it gets into that stage. It tends to be that way. And I think those of us who are really good meditators, we don't want to know that. <laughs> like, oh, I just, you know, I just open to what shows up. <laughs> But actually, when you've been really wounded in one of these stages, maybe in one relationship, when it shows up in your practice, that wound's going to be right there. But you don't see it as a wound, because you're projecting it onto the object. Does this make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, so maybe as we read this, we can also reflect on where, where we get stuck. Because we all do. You know. We all get stuck. And that's why community and practicing together is so, so important. And maybe somebody will say to you, because they love you, you're in stage two. (laughs) (laughs) And then you can, I'm leaving. I don't want to be called on this. (laughs) Are there any comments before we finished? Before we finish up? In other evenings around this, we'll have lots of time to talk together. I just really wanted to present the basics tonight. Yeah, Petra. Do you have more copies? I, mean, I printed 45 copies, so if they're all gone, maybe someone will give you theirs. Yeah. Okay. I'll print some more for next week. Could you even just email it out? Just Google it. Oh, it's Google. Norman Fisher, Eight Stages of Monastic Practice. It was published in Windbell, which is the journal for the San Francisco Zen Center. I think it's Windbell. Yeah. You just look up Zen. If you just look up eight stages of monastic practice, you'll get it. Easy to find. Any other comments or? It reminds me of. Um, it was a joke that went around a number of years ago. It was a yeah. series of emails, and it was uh-huh. a new person who had moved to Canada. Yeah. And then it was just a short paragraph of what was going yeah. on with that person. Uh-huh. And the first paragraph was talking about how beautiful the winter was and how the snow was so glorious. And, yeah. you know, every time they looked at the window, they saw white. And then it progressed into yeah. sort of the reality of Canadian winter yeah. until the end. He was yeah. cursing the snow. Yeah. <laughs> it, it was funny, but it, it's very much like this. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. 
Yeah, you know, if you've had someone in your life who, um, you know, when your faults have shown up, have really uh, not been able to look at that, um, then you start to hide them a little, you know. And then um, when you then get into a relationship, uh, it's hard to reveal because you've learned at like a cellular level uh, to keep, keep careful there, you know. And so in a way these eight stages of relationship are actually just um, eight forms of neuroses. that we all um, get caught in. And why I think they're so powerful is because I think when we start talking about spiritual practice, people don't look at that. They don't look at it. They just want to be in the part of spiritual practice that makes them feel good. And then when it gets hard, there's no tools there. So... um, I know this isn't happening for any of you, but apparently it happens for for people uh, outside of these walls um, in the other schools. I don't know if this question is premature because we haven't read past the second stage, but um, do you think you can move through the second to the third stage independently? without sort of a practitioner guiding you or like reflecting back to you just like looking at your own feedback in your own life does that make sense Uh uh-huh we'll see um i i don't think in any culture do people take the journey uh through hades alone And um, I think one of the great uh, tragedies of American culture is this idea that you do it independently. You do it alone. Mm -hmm. um, I I, I think about... uh, film somewhere that's out in theaters right now by Sofia Coppola and um, the first scene is this this man in a Ferrari driving in circles around a racetrack and the camera's in one spot and you just see the car come into view go around and it just stays there and I don't know how long the shot is maybe three or four minutes and nothing happens just the car goes around around (laughs) And around, and actually, all through the film, there's this theme of these moments where someone's just circling something over and over again. And um, this is samsara, right? This is usually, which is usually translated as habit, but it actually it it could be translated as meaninglessness, where we're spinning around in circles, in addictions or whatever, and our life isn't meaningful. You know, but in most cultures, uh, when that's going on, there's somebody to accompany you, to support you, to see through that, to get back in touch with your values. And I think in our culture, we think we need to like do it ourselves, <laughs> you know, and then we don't allow ourselves to be students and to really have somebody point out. Um, where it is we're stuck, whether it's a fellow practitioner um, and so on. And that's why in the precepts course, everybody has a friend that they're going through the course with. And they meet, a lot of you are in the course, so you know this, but for those of you who are not, they meet with their friend every week. And they explore, in terms of whatever ethical precept we're studying, how that's going for them. So the first one was nonviolence of speech. <coughs> then we worked on honesty of speech. And then you meet someone every week and, you, and they say, How's, and the, the homework is, you listen and they talk for 20 minutes and you don't give any advice. 
Did you hear that? And then they talk. And then you talk for 20 minutes, and they listen. And then you talk about what it was like to talk about it. And nobody gets punished. And no one gets struck down with lightning or whatever, because they were dishonest. And nobody, as far as I know, is going to be reborn as a cow or something. So you share where you've broken a precept, and someone listens, and they're your friend. And in the sharing, sometimes just someone listening, you can hear something, right? That you couldn't hear just when your own internal dialogue. Do you know? So uh, that's so important, I think. And um, just for us to stop, I don't know. Human beings are like overconfidence machines, you know. It's like, I I can do this. It's like, okay, come on a retreat and we'll see what your mind really looks like. Okay, let's finish with chanting. Life and death are of supreme importance. Life and death are of supreme importance. Time passes swiftly and opportunity is lost. Time passes swiftly and opportunity is lost. Let us awaken. Let us awaken. 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 Do not squander your life. May all beings be happy. May all beings be happy. May all beings be healthy. May all beings be healthy. May all beings be safe and free from danger. May all beings be safe and free from danger. May all beings be free from their ancient and twisted karma. May all beings be free from their ancient and twisted karma. May all beings be free from every form of discontent. May all beings be free from every form of discontent. Namaste. Namaste.